0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit garynorth.com freebooks free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Part 2 Application of God's Law to Political Ends Chapter 22 The Political Implications of the Comprehensive Gospel quote, If we must glorify God even in our eating and drinking, then surely we must also glorify Him in the way that we vote and thereby encourage statesmen to rule our society. It used to be the case that when a Bible believing author wanted to write on some aspect of social morality or political policy, he had to give an introductory apologetic in defense for entering into such an area of discussion. Given the background of liberal or modernistic involvement in politics, given the threat of the social gospel, and given the evangelical withdrawal from the world encouraged by church-centered pietism and law-denying dispensationalism, anyone who wrote on subjects of political or social ethics would easily be suspected of compromise or departure from the faith. So reticence characterized evangelical and reformed publications in these areas. Times have obviously changed if we pay attention to the avalanche of books which have begun to be published over the last few years on the Christian, evangelical or reformed, approach to politics and social ethics. The pendulum has swung back so far in the other direction, in fact, that some measure of suspicion is likely to be felt toward any Bible-believing author who renounces or completely ignores such a vital concern. Trusted writers in the conservative tradition of theology have taken to penning their opinions about political morality. Men with visible political connections have written about their conversions and their Christian involvement in society's leadership. Pressing problems in the governing of the state, from tolerance toward homosexuality to legalized abortion, have forced an end to the policy of Christian silence on social issues of the day. Increased interest in the notion that Christianity pertains to the whole man— not simply his inward spiritual destiny, that its principles touch on all areas of life, not merely an hour of worship on the Lord's day, and that the coming of Christ's kingdom has implications for the renewal of the entire creation, and not only the saving of souls from hell's fire, has naturally worked itself out in an increased interest in the Christian view of science, art, economics, politics, and everything else. So, due to many factors, Christians have more and more in the last generation become politically aware and active. None of this should legitimately suggest, of course, that Christianity is primarily or most importantly a political position. It ought not to minimize the centrality and indispensable truth of the good news that Christ came to save his people from the curse of sin and the penalty of final judgment for their rebellion, the cross and resurrection, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of justification by faith have not been forgotten or subordinated. However, the full implications of these truths are being appreciated again, even as they have been appreciated in previous days of the Church's existence. King Jesus In 1719, Isaac Watts wrote a now-famous hymn which expresses some of these implications, a hymn which Bible-believing Christians have sung, especially at Christmas season, and thus being joined even by many unbelievers for over two and a half centuries. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The church has sung of the political implications of the gospel for years now. It has sung that the earth must receive her king, a reigning savior who rules the world, making the nations prove his righteousness. And this king is interested in more than the inward souls of men and their heavenly existence in the future. As a savior from sin, Christ is interested in every aspect of life infected by sin at man's fall. Quote, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. End quote. Just because man's social existence and his political efforts have been cursed by sin, Christ the King proves his righteousness in the realm of human politics, even as he reigns over every other department of man's thoughts, life, and behavior. The early church was well aware of the political implications of being a Christian. To be a Christian, a disciple or follower of Christ, Acts 11:26), 26, meant to confess Jesus Christ as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Christians declared that Jesus was their Savior, or soter, Greek. As we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, quote, we have beheld... And bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be Saviour of the world, end quote. despite the fact that Roman coins of the day often depicted the Emperor's face with the inscription of Soter or only Saviour in some cases. The earliest Christians declared the name of Jesus was the one and only name given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter four, verse twelve. It was also essential for a Christian to quote, believe that Jesus is the Christ. End quote or Messiah, as it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Because Jesus admitted openly that he was the Christ, the Sanhedrin brought him before Pilate for trial, where Pilate, too, inquired and found out that Jesus considered himself a king. Luke chapter 22, verse 67 through chapter 23, verse 3. In which case, he was deemed to be speaking out against Caesar himself. John chapter 19, verse 12. Finally, the New Testament shows us that it is characteristic of all Christians that they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Meaning that their allegiance in all things belongs to him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15, Revelation chapter 17 verse 14, and chapter 19 verse 16. Even as he battles against the political power of the beast and the kings of the earth, So then, like it or not, the earliest Christians comprehended that being a Christian had political ramifications. Paul and the Christians at Thessalonica were charged with political crimes because of their confession of Christ. It was alleged, quote, These all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, end quote. Acts chapter 17, verse 7. We know that one day King Jesus will require all kings of the earth to give an account of their rule to him as their sovereign ruler and judge, All thrones were created for him, who is to have preeminence in all things. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Kings who have been so unwise as not to serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son will experience his wrath, perishing in the way. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Therefore, we can see how important and legitimate it is for Christians, Bible-believing Christians, who want to submit to Scripture from beginning to end, to maintain God-glorifying attitudes and beliefs about politics and social ethics. If we must glorify God even in our eating and drinking, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, then surely we must also glorify him in the way that we vote and thereby encourage statesmen to rule our society. Indeed, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, so that his will is done on earth, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Uncertain Trumpets But what is his will for political ethics? This is the critical question, yet it is the question that modern Christian writers on politics and social morality find so difficult, if not impossible, to answer clearly and specifically. With the renewed interest we are seeing in our day for Christians to rush into the political arena with a complete world and life view, which touches on everything of human interest, with the flood of books and articles which are now being published on the Christian approach to politics, what would happen if the world were all of a sudden to stop short and simply say,, quote, "All right, we see how humanism has failed so desperately. What do you Christians say we should do in matters of political ethics End quote?" Once given the opportunity to speak out with the Christian perspective, would evangelical and reformed writers have anything to say beyond generalizations and ambiguous platitudes? There is a reason to doubt that they would. The explanation of that likely failure is not hard to find. The reason why Christians who want to write or take a stand on issues of political ethics have usually failed to produce distinctive and helpful answers, which are clear and specific, is to be found in their reluctance to endorse and publicize the law of God, precisely where the Lord has revealed definite answers to the socio-political problems of men and their civilizations. What kind of good news or gospel does the kingdom of Jesus Christ bring according to many Christian groups? The social gospel. A social gospel is dominated by modernists and liberals, as most any Bible-believing Christian knows today. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the higher critical movement and scholarship challenged much of the biblical teaching and undermined the most basic theology of the Christian church. Thus the work and message of Christ were reduced, so that he performed no priestly work by his death and resurrection and secured no eternal salvation for men. The modernistic approach to man became evolutionary and naturalistic, further denying the Christian message about man's unique dignity as God's image and special creation by his hand. As a result, modernism turned away from the verities of biblical Christianity and concentrated almost exclusively on moralistic themes and interests, especially matters touching on the brotherhood of all men, as seen in social relations. So liberal theologians felt no hesitation to propagate humanistic solutions to political questions, all in the name of Christianity. We must remember, however, that the fault with the social gospel was not that it was social, but that it was modernistic and Bible-denying. The Fundamentalist Response In reaction to liberalism, fundamentalism in the 20th century preached an individualistic gospel by extreme contrast. The emphasis fell upon saving men's souls from eternal damnation and changing men's hearts for church-oriented living, waiting for the imminent return of Christ to this hopelessly degenerating world. Ironically, for all the effort to distance itself from liberalism's errors, the commendable insistence on certain key fundamental doctrines of the Bible in fundamentalism tended to create a short-sightedness to the full implications of Christianity. Once again, the work and message of Christ were reduced for the full salvation which Christ accomplished was narrowed to the spiritual aspects of man and the present kingdom and rule of Christ were postponed to a later date when socio-political matters would again reappear on the agenda. Redemption was not seen as applying as far as sin's curse is found and godliness was narrowly defined by abstinence from worldly abuses like drinking, smoking, movies, dancing, etc., The conservatism of fundamentalism was sorely needed in theology, of course, but the social effects were less than beneficial. Jesus said that if the salt has lost its savor, it is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. Matthew 5, verse 13. To the extent that this happened to fundamentalism, it was because it did not proclaim the whole counsel of God, even for social, political morality, Paul's ethic was not exclusively focused on the future life in heaven or the individualistic behavior of the present. He said, quote, godliness is profitable for all things, having promise for the life which is now and of that which is to come, end quote. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. Lutheranism and Romanism. Side by side with the social gospel of modernism and the individualistic gospel of fundamentalism, we can place the dichotomistic gospel of Romanism and Lutheranism. The Lutheran Church, to be sure, stands firmly opposed to the theological errors of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther, we recall, inaugurated the Protestant Reformation of the Church by insisting on the doctrine of justification by faith, over against the Romanist notions of righteousness through works of the law. Yet, strangely enough, the Lutheran outlook on socio-political matters has developed into a parallel perspective to that of Rome. The Roman Catholic Church reduces the work of Christ, leaving the completion of salvation to priests and to human efforts, while the Lutheran Church tends to reduce the message of Christ, drawing a strong opposition between law and gospel, and laying nearly exclusive stress on the latter. The Roman Catholic outlook over the years has been that there is a distinction to be drawn between the realms of nature and grace. Some matters pertain to one, while different matters pertain to the other. Political questions are natural to man in his social existence, and thus the perspective of grace, special revelation, is not directly pertinent to them. In that case, man's self-sufficient and natural reason becomes the arbitrator in issues of political ethics. In parallel fashion, classic Lutheran doctrine teaches that there is a kingdom of the right hand and a kingdom of the left hand, one pertaining to salvation and the church, while the other pertains to creation and society. As a result, when believers enter into political reasoning, they do so on a common platform with unbelievers. Neither Romanism nor Lutheranism have a direct and specific word from God on political matters, but only on matters concerned with grace and salvation. As a result, they both promote a neutral attitude toward politics which cannot offer distinct guidance from scripture for society. The dichotomies which are central to these theological perspectives screen out a fully biblical orientation to political ethics. Neo-Orthodoxy. Rocking to yet another extreme, Neo-Orthodoxy and subsequent radical theologies have pro- proclaimed the unsure gospel, which addressed special problems in society and politics, but with no clear and specific word from God. Karl Barth was confident that the commands of the Bible were not universal truths applicable to every age and culture, but merely time-bound witnesses to the will of God. Emil Brunner, Went further to say that the Bible could not, in the nature of the case, provide us with pre-established norms of conduct, for our obligations, he thought, could only be determined by the situation in which we find ourselves, opening the door wide to the development of Joseph Fletcher's situational morality, where moral duty is relativistic. Neo-Orthodoxy promoted nothing more than cheap grace, which did not require men to be converted, to repent of specific sins, and to be sanctified according to an unchanging pattern of holiness. Neo-Orthodoxy could not offer anything but a nebulous gospel to men, for according to it, God did not communicate in infallible verbal propositions. So it was only to be expected that the Neo-Orthodox approach to social problems was ambiguous, unclear, and unauthoritative. It has no sure word from God by which to judge and guide the social affairs of men. The Comprehensive Gospel Over against the social gospel of modernism, the individualistic gospel of fundamentalism, the dichotomistic gospel of Romanism and Lutheranism, and the unsure gospel of neo-Orthodoxy and radicalism, we find the blessed and refreshing comprehensive gospel of Reformed theology, which is the heritage of biblical Christianity. The good news of Christ's kingdom is that Jesus Christ graciously and powerfully saves man and in the fullness of his created and sinful existence. He is a prophet declaring God's will for ignorant men. He is a priest interceding to God on behalf of polluted sinners. And he is a king, ruler over all men and all areas of life. The coming of the kingdom, therefore, brings the progressive rule of Christ over the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. The Reformed churches have always stood for the proclamation of sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Scripture alone must be the standard of our theology and ethic, and we must preach all scripture in its total relevance to the life of men. Only scripture, but totally scripture. Consequently, we observe that the preaching of the New Testament is not apolitical. Jesus rebuked Herod as a vixen, and John the Baptist called his behavior unlawful. Paul warns against a political ruler who is the man of lawlessness, and John calls him the beast. Over against these evil rulers, Christians are to stand for the law of God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, and chapter 14, verse 12. Because Paul taught that the civil magistrate was obligated to be a minister of God who avenges his wrath against evildoers who violate God's law. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Since the New Testament is not apolitical, neither is the comprehensive preaching of the Reformed Churches. However, in recent years there has been a steady disinclination to maintain the political use of the law of God when it comes to declaring God's will for political morality. Accordingly, we take up the question of whether the civil magistrate today should obey and enforce the Old Testament law of God.
1: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts,